story goes that Thomas Aquinas, perhaps one of the greatest theologians that the world has ever known, toward the end of his life suddenly stopped writing. And in his lifetime, he had undertaken one of the most monumental theological achievements of Western civilization, a massive work entitled the Summa Theologica, in 38 treatises, 3,000 articles, and 10,000 objections, Aquinas attempted to gather into one coherent whole all of God's truth. It's quite an undertaking. On December 6th, in 1273, he abruptly stopped writing. It is said that while celebrating Mass, he caught a glimpse of eternity and realized that all of his attempts to describe God's fell so far short that he decided to never write again. When his secretary tried to encourage him to continue writing, lamenting the fact that his work was unfinished, Aquinas replied with these words, Reginald, I can do no more. A few months ago, I experienced something of the reality of Jesus Christ. And that day, I lost all appetite for writing. Such things have been revealed to me that all I have written seems now to be like straw. Now, the more I study about the Holy Spirit, the more I read about His person and His work and His ministry, the more I pray, the more people I talk to about the way He is working in the world and the church and in individual lives, the more emails I get from you, the more I realize that my simple attempts to explain the Holy Spirit resembles straw. Not because we can't know Him, for the Bible teaches clear truth about Him, but I believe God wants us to know Him. Yet in learning about Him, we must never lose sight of the fact that there's always much more to be learned. We'll never exhaust the learning. Just when we think that we've got him defined, just when we are sure that we have him wrapped up in a neat little manageable package, we find out something else that expands our view. And the package can no longer contain him. And so as a word of advice, whatever you learn from this series, remember that there's a lifetime of more learning for you. For all of us, as we walk out these doors. He is God, after all. Amen? Amen? And we are men and women with a limited capacity to absorb and com comprehend all that God is. And we stand amazed at his awesome greatness, don't we? So before we look into his word today, I want to sincerely pray the words of the Apostle Paul for each one of you. Again, Let's pray. I'm going to read the words and pray the words of Ephesians chapter 3 for you. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources that he will give you mighty inner strength through his Holy Spirit. And I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts as you trust in him. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love really is. 
May you experience the love of Christ, though it is so great you will never fully understand it. Then you will be filled with the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now glory be to God, and by his mighty power at work within us, he is able to accomplish infinitely more than we would ever dare to ask or hope. May he be given glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever through endless ages. Amen. The story is told of two men who were traveling together on a vacation. They decided that they would go and make a stop at one of the natural wonders of the world, Niagara Falls. How many of you have been to Niagara Falls before? Pretty awesome sight, isn't it? Well, they were completely awestruck as they viewed the immensity of the great power of the Niagara River. And from the top of the falls, they could see this massive mist rising, uh, perpetually hanging there over the great precipice. And one of the two men, having seen the site before, said to his friend, Come on with me, I'm going to show you the greatest unused power in the entire world. And as he said that, the two men made their way to the foot of the falls. And he pointed and he said, there, said the man, is the greatest unused power in the world. And the second man looked at him with regret and replied, no, my friend, the greatest unused power in the world is the Holy Spirit of the living God. Someone has said that if the Holy Spirit were taken out of the world today, then 90% of the church activity would continue business as usual. I often wonder to what extent that statement is true. We have so much at our disposal, at our grasp, so much technology, so much equipment, so much information at our fingertips, and we have so much knowledge and experience as to how people think and respond that we can seemingly push the right emotional and intellectual buttons to stimulate persuasion in people. We have better trained personnel and better techniques than we've ever had. We can create finely crafted and compelling presentations wrapped in perfect, a perfect atmosphere through the use of music and lighting and graphic arts and even room temperature. That sometimes I wonder just how much we rely upon the fullness of the Spirit and God's unmatched power to accomplish ministry. Anybody see the opening ceremony for the Olympics? Amazing what they can do, what we can do. One man is charged, we say we depend upon the Holy Spirit, but actually we're so wired up with our own devices that if the fire does not fall from heaven, we can turn on a switch and produce false fire of our own. If there's no sound of a mighty rushing wind, we have the furnace all set to blow hot air instead. Right? Then he says, God save us from a synthetic Pentecost. What a statement. Friends, I don't care how good we think we are. We cannot produce spiritual fire with fleshly fuel. After the Holy Spirit was unleashed upon the, the disciples in the first century, and they were all filled with power, unbelievable things took place. The word was preached boldly. Souls were saved by the thousands. Lives were healed. Enemies were reconciled. And God was glorified. Believers like Paul and Silas were described as people who, quote, turned the world upside down, unquote. 
Anyone saying that about us, by the way? About you? Me? See, what they were doing was not by their own power, it was not by their own strength, it wasn't by their own might, but by the Spirit of God that these things were taking place. May I suggest to you that if we want to see our world turned upside down again, or someone's personal life turned around, that it is only going to happen by that same power. It can happen and it will happen through God's sold-out people operating in God's sovereign power by the filling of God's Holy Spirit. That's the way it has happened throughout history and that's the way it's still happening today. You believe that? Now just imagine, I've thrown this out before, think of the first message, just imagine if the full power of the Holy Spirit was to be unleashed today through all believers simultaneously. Let me tell you, the world would be a starkly different place, wouldn't it? The church would be a starkly different place. That thought is what makes what Paul says about the fullness of the Spirit all the more significant to us. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to look at a few verses. Actually, to today, we're only going to look at one verse. And then the next time, we're going to look at the rest of them. But I want to read them all to you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 right down to verse 21. Paul writes to the Ephesians, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's the text. And what Paul is saying here is the filling of the Spirit is fundamental to our faith. Fundamental to our faith. We are controlled by many things today. But how many of us would actually say that we are controlled by the Holy Spirit? Who would be willing to say that? How much of the church's operation is spirit-motivated rather than man-generated? That's the question. In his book, The Spirit, the Church, and the World, author John Stott writes this. He says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be impossible, inconceivable. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. Do you not know, wrote Paul to the Corinthian church, that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? That's what Paul wrote. And we may all nod our heads in agreement, but we also must realize that the church is made up of individuals. It's not just a corporate entity. It's made up of individuals, and unless they themselves, we ourselves, are controlled by the Holy Spirit, the church as a group cannot be. You following me? If you and I are not controlled by the Holy Spirit, the church as a whole will not be, cannot be. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verses 19 to 21, Paul reminds them again 
Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And the word is singular there. He's talking about individual people. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So therefore, glorify God in your body. Now that brings the responsibility right home, doesn't it? To you and me. It's yours and it's mine. And the command in Ephesians 5.18 is clear for all of us. Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we cannot imitate Christ unless we are. We can't. We cannot make wise use of our time. If you back up in the context and you read the greater context of Ephesians chapter 5, you find out that we're supposed to be making wise use of our time because the days are evil. We can't make wise use of our time without the filling of the Spirit. We cannot understand what the will of the Lord is without the filling of the Spirit. It is absolutely fundamental to a healthy, growing, vibrant Christian life. But there's such mystery that surrounds the subject of the filling of the Holy Spirit. What does it all mean? How does it happen? How do I know if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? There are some things about the Spirit's filling that we need to clarify this morning. And hopefully through the scriptures that we're going to look at, we will find what we need. I just have one point this morning. It's great, huh? <laughs> one point. Not five points, one point. Now, don't be under the impression that that means it's going to be a short sermon. One, one point. It's simply this. We need to embrace his counsel. We need to embrace his counsel. Be filled with the Spirit, Paul says. Billy Graham got right to the point very quickly on this issue in his book, The Holy Spirit, when he said that, quote, I think it is proper to say that anyone who is not Spirit-filled is a defective Christian, unquote. How do you feel about that statement? Because he's right. Being filled with the Spirit is not supposed to be an abnormal activity or an occurrence for the Christian. It should be the norm. A.W. Tozer put it like this. He said, the Spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for His people. You must be satisfied that it is not abnormal. I admit that it is unusual because there are so few people who walk in the light of it or enjoy it. But it is not abnormal. In a world where everybody was sick, health would be unusual, but it wouldn't be abnormal, right? This is unusual only because our spiritual lives are so wretchedly sick and so far down from where they should be. Tozer has a way with words, and they're usually pretty incisive. Now, it's one thing to become a Christian. It's something else to live as a Spirit-filled Christian. Not every believer is filled with the Spirit in the sense that Paul is using the term here in this text. When a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, in the person and work of Christ, when he or she becomes born again, the Bible says that immediately he or she is indwelt by the Holy Spirit sealed by the Holy Spirit for eternal life, 
and baptized, placed into the, the universal body of Christ by that same spirit. What an astounding truth that is. Reading, I've read a book by Francis Chan. Some of you may have picked up the book I recommended some months ago called Crazy Love. His newest book is called Forgotten God, and it's about the Holy Spirit. But he gets really practical with this point. He writes, astonished, this is not a distant, loose connection. He says, this is the Spirit of God choosing you and me to be his dwelling place. That means that the Spirit of the living God is inside of me. I might wake up on a particular day feeling physically tired or stressed or impatient. And humanly speaking, those things would probably define my day. But the reality is I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And because of this reality, stress and tiredness and impatience don't have to define my day. If you have received faith, by faith, the promise of the Holy Spirit, you are also his temple. And as you drive your children to school, as you go to work every single day, as you embark on a new unknown season of your life, as you go to school, as you face tragedy and pain, as you buy your groceries, as you give yourself in relationships, as you walk the dog, as you make decisions, as you live your life, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. You realize that? If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit in full. You don't have a part of Him. You don't need any more of Him. You don't need any additives. He's there ready, willing, and able to empower you to do anything that God wills for you to do. Anything. But you know what? Tragically, many of us are operating our lives apart from that control. And that is exactly what the issue of being filled with the Spirit is all about. It's about control. How many of you would admit to having control issues? Yeah. The whole fact that you didn't raise your hand proves that you have a control issue. I'm in control. It's not about us trying to get more and more of the Spirit. It's about letting Him acquire more and more control over us. To be Spirit-filled is to be Spirit-controlled. Let's look at the negative command here in verse 18. Paul says, he starts out this way, he says, and do not get drunk with wine. Now, I'm asking all kinds of questions this morning. How many of you have been drunk with wine? No, don't answer that question. <laughs> Drunkenness in Paul's time was as rampant as it is in ours today. It was and still is one of the greatest forms of self-destructive slavery that there is. The Greek philosopher Philo wrote that drunkenness was generally a mark of the blind and foolish man who is a slave to the material world. Alcohol influences and it inevitably controls it ruins lives. The statistics are off the map on this. It should be no surprise to any of us then that drunkenness is always, always, I'm not kidding you, always condemned as sin in the Scripture. 
But there was another reason that Paul gave this command. Drunkenness was intimately connected with the religious worship celebrations of certain gods in the Greek and Roman pantheon, specifically Dionysus and Bacchus. Now let me give you a little background on these two. In Greek mythology, the ancient god Zeus had a son named Dionysus who became ruler of the human race. He developed a religious system whereby human beings could rise to the level of divine consciousness. This mystical system was comprised of wild music, frenzied dancing, sexual perversion, bodily mutilation, the eating of raw flesh of sacrificial animals, and drunkenness. That brings me back to the old days at your typical Aussie concert, doesn't it? Dionysus became known as the god of wine, the drink that was integral to the religion that centered around him. The Roman counterpart to Dionysus was Bacchus, who was worshipped with the same kinds of practices. Drunkenness became a very key element in these practices, giving those who worshipped the necessary feelings of ecstasy and exhilaration that they needed to counterfeit true joy. The worshipers felt that they were completely united, indwelt, and controlled by the god Dionysus himself and that he gave them special powers when they were in this state. Now the Ephesians were very, very familiar with these rituals and Paul understood how influential they were upon the church. In fact, Plato writes that while these abominable ceremonies in the worship of Bacchus continued, it was difficult to find a single sober person in these celebrations. Getting drunk for a Christian in those times was both a hindrance to and a counterfeit of being filled with the Spirit. Now, similar issues have faced the church in our times. Counterfeit experiences abound. They abound. I have seen videotaped examples. I've actually been in the presence of these examples at conferences and read personal accounts of people that are so-called filled with the new wine of the Spirit and proceed to stagger around the sanctuary as if they were drunk, falling down in hysterical fits of laughter, passing out, vomiting, and acting exactly like a person totally intoxicated with alcohol. Now, you know, coming from a person that used to spend his life in bars all the time and seeing this kind of thing go on, I don't find a whole lot of difference there between that and what I used to see with a bunch of people that weren't filled with the Spirit. They were filled with wine and other kinds of drink. Some claim that Paul is making the comparison here to say that being filled with the Spirit is like being drunk on alcohol and experiencing a so-called spiritual stupor, so to speak. I want to just go on record by saying this morning that I flat out disagree with that. I don't think Paul was comparing being filled with the Spirit as if it were like drunkenness here. Just the opposite. 
I think what Paul was doing here was contrasting the two. While there may be some similarities drawn, I believe the major thrust here is upon the differences, not on the similarities. Paul identifies drunkenness here as dissipation, which means reckless, loose, and out-of-control behavior. But the Spirit-filled life, one that bears his fruit, will exhibit, among other things, self-control. Read it in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. We're going to look at those things in detail in a few weeks. True, when we're filled with the Spirit, we should be under His total influence, no question about it. But that influence is neither destructive nor is it unrestrained and out of control. I think John Stott, again, describes Paul's meaning accurately. He says, we can indeed agree in that in both drunkenness and the fullness of the Spirit, two strong influences are at work within us. Alcohol in the bloodstream, the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But whereas excessive alcohol leads to unrestrained and irrational license, transforming the drunkard into an animal, the fullness of the Spirit leads to restrained and rational moral behavior, transforming the Christian into the image of Christ. See the difference? Thus the results of being under the influence of spirits on the one hand and of the Holy Spirit of God on the other are totally and utterly different. One makes us like beasts, the other like Christ. I love the way the New Living Translation translates this passage of Scripture. Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. Listen to it in this translation. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. Then you will sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts, and you will always give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And further, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that's the negative side of the command here in verse 18. Let's look at the positive side of the command. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled, rather, with the Holy Spirit. Here's the deal. This is a command. And it's given for all believers in Jesus Christ. It's therefore something that every Christian should obey. Amen? Fruitfulness depends on a life that is spirit-filled. Power for service depends on it. The spirit-filled life is an energized, exhilarating, and purposeful life. So what in the world does it mean? You might be thinking, well, it's all Greek to me. And you'd be exactly right. If we dig a little bit deeper into the way that Paul uses the Greek word, a little more clarity emerges. So bear with me this morning as we indulge in a little Greek grammar lesson. Okay? Here we go. First of all, the term be filled. It's one word in the Greek language. It's in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. It's not a good suggestion. It's a divine command. We can't pass it off as a polite piece of advice or optional activity. It's authoritative the way it's given here. We don't have any more right to ignore it than we have to forget the other commands in the rest of the immediate context, like 
speaking the truth, walking in love, forgiving as God in Christ has forgiven you, imitating Christ, loving your wife as Christ loved the church. Those are all in this context, and they all depend upon the fulfillment of the command in verse 18 to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So being filled is not an option for your life growing in Christ. It is a necessity. A necessity. Secondly, it's in the plural form, which means it's for everyone, the whole Christian community, not just the super spiritual initiated ones or those who refer to themselves as charismatic Christians. It's for you. If you are a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit living in your life, you are a charismatic Christian. Because the Greek word charisma means grace gift. And you have it. Thirdly, it's in the passive voice. That means it's not something that you and I can conjure up, work up, or appropriate ourselves. The command cannot be translated, fill yourselves up with the Holy Spirit. Grammatically, that is not accurate. It is more accurately translated like this. Let the Holy Spirit continually fill you up as a matter of habit. God is the one that does the filling. You don't do it. We simply make ourselves available for it. There is, however, an element of human responsibility here. We must be involved in this process. Sin clogs the machinery. If we're harboring unconfessed sin and engaging in self-centered lifestyles, we are obstructing the flow. A.W. Tozer again gets pretty incisive when he asks the penetrating questions. I want to ask you these questions too. Are you sure that you want to be filled with the Spirit? Are you sure that you want to be filled with a spirit who, though he is like Jesus in gentleness and love, will nevertheless demand to be Lord of your life? Are you willing to let your personality to be taken over by another? If the spirit takes charge of your life, he will expect unquestioning obedience to everything. He will be jealous over you for good. He will take the direction of your life away from you. And through it all, though, he will enfold you in a love so vast, so mighty, so all-embracing and so wondrous that the very losses will seem like gains and your small pains will be pleasures. Are you sure you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It's in the imperative mood, the plural form, the passive voice, and fourthly, it is in the present tense which means it's referring to an appropriation that is continual and ongoing every moment of every day. In other words, it doesn't happen once and then you're set for life. It's like breathing. It requires constant replenishing. And it is absolutely necessary for your spiritual life. To borrow from Chuck Swindoll, what fuel is to a car, the Holy Spirit is to the believer. He energizes us to stay on course. He motivates us in spite of the obstacles. He keeps us going when the road gets rough. He is our spiritual fuel. 
When we attempt to operate without him or use some substitute fuel, all systems grind to a halt. A friend of mine, one of my best friends, he used to always give me a hard time because every time he got in my car, I was running on empty. The needle was like down at the bottom of the scale. How many of you do that? Now let me ask you another question. How many people are like that in their spiritual life? That can't happen, folks. We need a full tank at all times. We can't rely on past fillings. Because driving on fumes doesn't cut it in the Christian life. We also can't rely on future expectations of fillings to carry us through. We can only live on present fuel. Now, I want to make a little disclaimer here because the illustration has its limitations. Don't think that if you're not filled with the Spirit that He's moved out and left you. That's not what I'm saying. He's there in full measure. According to John 3, verse 34... It's just a matter of us allowing him to flow out of us. Paul literally says this, keep on allowing yourselves to be full and filled with the Spirit. Look, God will not fill what is already full. In other words, if our life is filled with ourself, he's not going to fill us with his Spirit. He won't force the issue on us. Being filled with the Spirit, then, is not a question of getting more of Him. It's a matter of Him getting more of you and me. That's the essence of the command here. It calls for a day-by-day, minute-by-minute, breath-by-breath yielding of ourselves to the Spirit's control, and it results in us leaving the flavor of Christ wherever we go. Isn't that a great picture? Before we go further into what it means to be filled with the Spirit, I think it's important to review what it, what it doesn't mean. Let me just do this really quickly. Number one, the filling of the Spirit is not a sudden energizing, a super spiritual experience in which we are catapulted into another realm of higher spirituality. It's not what it is. I believe that there are times when the Spirit does empower us mightily and use us in large capacities for accomplishing a special task that he has for us. That's a different thing. That's not what Paul's referring to here, I don't believe. And we're going to get into that in another message. Number two, it's not the opposite of that either. In other words, it's not a totally emotionless, stoic routine of religiosity. It's not some passive waiting on God to move. Three, the filling of the Spirit is not the same thing as possessing or being indwelt by the Spirit, which is something that happens when you believe. And I believe happens permanently at salvation. Nor is it the same as the baptism by the Spirit, which I also believe is something that happens when you are placed into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says that by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. 
Warren Wiersbe really put it practically. He said that the baptism of the Spirit means that I belong to his body. The fullness of the Spirit means that my body belongs to him. Now, it's not also, number four, the same as being sealed with the Holy Spirit. That too happens when you place your faith in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, and chapter 4, verse 30 says this, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Do not grieve then the Holy Spirit by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Believers are never commanded in the scriptures to be indwelt or to be baptized or sealed by the Holy Spirit. But we are commanded to be continually filled with the Spirit. Now, finally, number five, the filling of the Spirit is not a progressive receiving more and more doses of the Spirit, sort of graduation by degrees until we have His fullness. When you were born again, the whole person of the Spirit came to live in you. You need to live in Him. And so do I. So now that we know what it isn't, how do we know what it is? To be spirit-filled is to be spirit-controlled. Simply put. It comes from a heart that has the same attitude that John the Baptist had about Christ when he said, he must increase and I must decrease. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. When you decrease and Christ increases in your life. And it involves a few things. It involves confession of sin. It involves surrendering your self-centered will, your time and your talents and your treasures to God. It involves saturating yourself with God's word. Colossians 3, verse 16 to 17. The message puts it like this. Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. I like that. Let it have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. And sing. Sing in your hearts out to God. Let every detail in your lives, words, actions, whatever, be done in the name of the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, thanking God the Father every step of the way. Those two passages, Colossians 3, 16 through 17, and Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, are parallel passages. They employ the same terminology we're going to get into next time. You know what being filled with the Spirit means? It means being Christ conscious. Not in the mystical sense, new agey sense, but to live as if he were right there with you. Because he is. Christ consciousness inevitably leads to Christ likeness. That term to be filled is used in three different senses in the New Testament. It means more than just simply filling something up like a glass of water. It was used of the wind as it fills a sail and moves the ship along. And that's significant. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be moved along in our Christian journey. It was also used in the sense of saturation or permeation as salt flavors meat. 
to be filled with the Spirit means that everything we do, we leave the flavor of God behind. And finally, the term was used in the sense of total control. Now, think about it for a minute, and we'll get into this more later, but when you're overcome by fear, how does that feel? When a person's overcome by lust, by hatred, by anger, by sorrow, or by love and compassion, etc., you know what we're doing? We're yielding our control, our emotional control, to that emotion, aren't we? We're yielding to it. To be filled with the Spirit in this sense involves a process of our yielding to Him. It's interesting that Paul gives us the command here, but never ever really defines the procedure. Those of you that love formulas and 10 steps to holy living books, you're going to hate this. You hate this. You're going to be incredibly frustrated here. Why? Because the truth is being spirit-filled is easier to describe than it is to delineate. Let me ask you a question. How do you be in love? What does it mean to be in love? I think the best that most of us could do would to be describe what takes place when we're in love. You can't really outline the mechanics of it, can you? You can try, but then it's not love anymore. All you can do is describe it. But I'll tell you one thing, you know it when you are, and you know it when you're not. Right? It's a similar thing with being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible describes what it looks like when we are and what it looks like when we're not. And you and I both know the difference. And that's the topic for the next sermon. And I'll have some good stuff for that. Look at verse 19. Just to give you a precursor here. This is what it looks like, okay? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. Even the Father. And being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. Masters, don't treat your slaves harshly. On and on it goes in this chapter. And it's all about what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. One thing is very clear that I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt. The Spirit-filled life is observable. It's observable. Because it changes us into the image of Christ. We look more like Him the way we were really created to be and a whole lot less 
than like our old us when we're filled with the Spirit. Not all at once, but a step at a time as we learn to yield more and more of ourselves to Him. And we're going to get pretty practical about that next time. Listen, let me close with this. In his book, A Way Through the Wilderness, which is a great book, by the way, if you happen to get your hands on it, it's by Jamie Buckingham. He writes that in the desert, there are three basic sources of water. There are cisterns, there are wells, and there are springs. Neither wells nor cisterns give a sure supply of water because they are man-made and they're temporary at best. Only the presence of a spring where the water can flow freely of its own accord brings the certainty of a source of water. Now, in the midst of our spiritual walk, we cannot rely on man-made cisterns and hand-dug wells that eventually will dry out. Our relationship to God and to others depends on an endless and tireless source of nourishment and power. Only a spring of living water will suffice. And we all have a choice. You and I have a choice every moment of every day. We can choose to operate in our own strength, getting power from our own cisterns. But Jeremiah, the prophet, warns of that, of God's displeasure of that. In Jeremiah 2.13, he said, For my people have committed two evils. Not the world. He says, my people. That they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Or we can respond to Jesus' invitation in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, when Jesus stood up in the midst of a great feast and he said, he shouted out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then in the very next verse, John says that Jesus was speaking of the Spirit whom those who believed were to receive. The Holy Spirit, folks, is never a cistern, never a well, but always a spring. Always a spring. And the question is, which will you choose to tap into? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have given us the measure of the Spirit in full. And it's a constant, flowing, bubbling brook of refreshment and power. Lord, I thirst for your Spirit. I pray that everybody within earshot of this message thirsts for the water of life. Because we live in a dry Dry, dry, parched land. God, help us to appropriate more of ourselves to you that the Spirit may flow freely and that wherever we go, we would leave the flavor of Jesus Christ in whose name I pray, amen.